0: as i said last night i trust that when we sing these songs we are not just repeating words but we are making them prayers to god and i so i was standing here this morning i thought you know it's we are uh, we talked a lot about uh, how praise is going to be eternal in heaven and we talked a lot about how praiseworthy god is and it's kind of hard to um to really fully enter into that because all we see is a screen in front of us and people, the backs of people's heads. And um, I think sometimes we get the picture that heaven is going to be just this endless service of standing in rows watching the back of people's heads and praising Jesus forever. But that's not what heaven's going to be like. Heaven's going to be being with Jesus Christ and seeing everything that He has prepared for us. And, and every delightful experience and life that we could enjoy today that God has given us is going to be multiplied millions of times over. So I just trust that as, as um, we enter into worship like we have today, that, we will, that God will empower us to truly see him as he is. And you know, I believe that one of the ways he has done that is he's given us one another. And as uh, Sunder and, and Alan were leading this morning in worship, I thought, uh, we are a blessed church to have godly men and women uh, in leadership. And um, I think the thing that I appreciate the most about Pastor Sunder is he does not Uh, he does not speak useless words. When he gets up, whether it's praying, whether it's dedicating a baby, whether it's a baptism, whether it's a sermon, whether it's an announcement, every word he speaks seems to have meaning. And I don't know if you realize what a rare treasure that is, but I pray that uh, God will continue to bless us with leaders like he has. And I just want to say, because I don't get a chance to stand here all that often to say how much I appreciate the leadership in this church. And I believe they're part of how God wants us to worship him and to see Christ in each of the people that he's given us in this family. That last song we sang said um, uh, that we need to uh, find um, strength in Christ alone. And I'd like to just uh, take a minute to turn our hearts again to those thoughts as we ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, um, we need to find our strength, our rest, in Jesus Christ alone. And as we um, have just come through this so called period of rest that we call summer vacation, we realize that the rest that we have on this earth is so short, so temporal, and we may already feel tired having taken our few days or weeks of rest, but we thank you that in Christ alone there is true rest. And Father, as we come before you this morning, we desire that you might give our hearts and minds rest from anything that would be troubling or distracting us, so that we could hear the words that you would speak to us. So Father, we ask that you might uh, just remove any of those things that we have brought with us this morning that uh, are on the edges of our mind, that are Uh, interfering, perhaps, with what you might want to say. And we pray that your word would speak to us powerfully this morning and that we would go from this place um, encouraged and enthused about our walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. They kept trying to take her picture. Even after the car stopped careening off the cement walls even as she lay dying in the back of its mangled chassis. She was their prey, so the photographers kept snapping their pictures, the lights from their cameras flashing in the tomb of the tunnel that sweeps along the right bank of the Seine River in Paris, capturing on film the mayhem of crushed metal and broken bodies in the back of the Mercedes 600. The driver was dead. A bodyguard lay gravely injured behind the spilled canvas of the airbag and the Points of the front grille. But the celebrity they were after was trapped in what had been the back seat, her companion already dead beside her. Diana, Princess of Wales, 36 years old, mother of two boys, was unconscious, her chest and her lungs crushed. No doctor would be able to save her from the tear in her left pulmonary artery or from the heart seizure that would follow. And still, amidst the trauma, and the broken glass and the eerie sound of the horn in the tunnel, the photographers kept snapping their pictures. Thus ended the sometimes tortured, sometimes fairy tale existence of the world's most famous princess. Just after midnight ten years ago, one August evening, this modern-day Cinderella lost her glass slipper never to retrieve it again. And the world was shocked, shocked at the abruptness of it all, shocked at the circumstances that had led up to those, that fatal moment, shocked by the finality, and perhaps more than anything else, shocked that death could touch this one as its victim. The death of Mother Teresa, the saint of the gutters, only a few days later, was not nearly so shocking nor tragic. You see, old people are supposed to die. Though that little shriveled old lady had touched innumerably more lives than that glamorous young princess, her death was only a loss. Diana's, for some reason, was a tragedy. One person said she wasn't meant to go now. She had such an incredible amount to give still. You see, somehow in our imaginations, rich, young, beautiful princesses aren't supposed to die, but they do. And perhaps more surprising than her death itself is the fact that we should even be surprised at all. I'd like you to take your Bibles this morning as we continue in the series on the Psalms that was begun this summer, and I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 49. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version I sort of flip back and forth between the NIV and the NAS, and so if you don't have this translation with you and you'd like to just listen, please feel free. So either follow along or listen as we read the words of the psalmist found in Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart, will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on a harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay, For he sees that even wise men perish, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They've called lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he'll carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish." The psalmist in this psalm seems to confront us with at least three universal thoughts that I believe we need to understand and see this morning. The first of which is very simply this. He confronts his readers with a universal truth. This truth is that it doesn't matter where you live or how you live. It doesn't matter who you are or what you know doesn't matter how rich you are, how smart you are, how pretty you are, how successful you are, this truth is true of you, and that is that you're going to die. Barring the return of Jesus Christ before that day, every single one of us sitting in this room today will fall under that universal truth of death. Another way we might say it, if we were to paraphrase the words of the psalmist, is that we are all dead meat. Now we say, well, I didn't think the psalmist probably talked like that. Well, actually, if you look what he said, it's almost exactly what he said. For example, he said in verse 12, man in his pomp will not endure, he is like the what? Beasts that perish, that's dead meat. We're all going to die. He expresses this thought in various ways. For instance, in verse 7, he says, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. In other words, uh, you can't bribe the undertaker. When the man in black comes knocking on your door, he's not going to talk turkey with you. He says it again in verse 10. He says, even wise men die. So it doesn't matter if you're incredibly intelligent, well-educated or wise. And he says, even the stupid and senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. What he is saying is very simple. Rich or poor, smart or dumb, pretty or ugly, we're all going to die. George Bernard Shaw once said, the statistics on death are quite sobering. One person out of one dies. (laughs) Brilliant, wasn't he? doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, how strong, how invincible you might think yourself to be, you are not immune from that universal truth. Not even if you think you're Superman. You may remember back in June of 1995, Hollywood's Superman, Christopher Reeve, took what would be the last flight of his career. As his horse was approaching a barrier... In an equestrian event, it stopped short, sending the rider over the barrier, landing and breaking his neck, resulting in permanent paralysis. Oddly enough, Reeve, who was an experienced rider, had just appeared in a series of of, uh, advertisements promoting equestrian safety. What's more, just before he had ridden in this particular event, he had been interviewed by a journalist and was sharing about his recent visit to to a hospital that specialized Uh, for those who suffered paralysis through neck injury. And he had said this to the journalist. He said, you see that it can easily happen to anyone. I mean anyone. And then it happened to him. Yes, even supermen are um, are not invincible. Now we might say, well, why on earth would the psalmist focus on such a morbid thought? Well, I'd suggest that he focuses on this universal truth in order to counteract a second universal, and that is a universal lie. This universal lie is a lie that is the oldest lie in the book. It was the lie that began all the way back in the garden when that serpent hissed in Eves' ear, you surely shall not die. That's the lie. That's the lie. It's the lie of immortality. It's the lie that leads men to think that somehow they can outrun the undertaker. It's the lie that makes us ignore this universal truth of our mortality and live as if we were never going to die. We ignore our mortality. We disguise it. We dress it up in suits and we call it an executive. Or we send it off to a university and call it educated. We take it to the local gym and call it fit. Or we cover it up with cosmetics and call it beauty. Even when we are forced to look death in the face... When somebody that we know dies, we still don't like that word. We, we don't say the guy's dead. We say he's passed on, he's, he's departed, uh, he's passed away. Because we don't like to think about that universal truth. Though we know that it is true, we tend to push that reality from our mind and live as if it weren't really true, at least not of us. Man knows that he will die, but in a sense he thinks that he won't. The psalmist describes it this way in verse 11. He says, their inner thought is that their houses are forever. They've named lands after their name. Pottsville. Sundertown. No, I haven't heard that one yet. But that's what people do. They name name lands after their name. Simply put, people tend to live like they're never going to die. Young person, college student, when you leave school on Friday afternoons, do you ever think that you might not live to see Monday morning? Some of you probably wish you wouldn't if it was exam day, but no, you don't think that way. You don't think I'm going to die this weekend, but you might. You might. To see the time and the energy and the money that some people put into all the stuff of this world, you sometimes get the impression that they must think that they're going to be here for an awful long time to enjoy it all. The psalmist says that not only do men tend to live that way, but that other men will actually applaud that kind of behavior, even as they're throwing dirt on the dead guy's head. He says in verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish. In other words, foolish people pursue that kind of a life, and it's also the way of those after them who approve their words. In verse 18, we see those two parties together again. He says, though while a man lives, he congratulates himself. Look how well I'm doing. How do you like my new designer suit and my new car? And though while man lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall still go to the generation of his fathers. In other words, he's still going to die. Doesn't that strike you a little peculiar? That we would live like that and applaud that kind of behavior? I think of a guy like Warren Buffett. You know Warren Buffett, richest man on earth today. Now, please understand, I don't know the spiritual condition of Warren, so I'm not commenting on that part. But you know Warren Buffett is worth $64 billion. Do you know how much that is? Let me tell you if I gave you a spending allowance of $44,000 every month, said you got $44,000 a month, you can spend it however you want. $525,000 a year, half a million dollars a year. If you, had half a million, if you spend half a million dollars every year, year after year, it would take you 2,000 years to spend the first billion. And he's got 64 of those. He could live at that spending rate for 124,000 years. But he's not going to. He's going to live for maybe 80 years at whatever spending rate he lives. And then he's going to live for hundreds of trillions of kazillions of years another way. I don't know what way that is because I don't know his spiritual condition. But I'm telling you, doesn't it make sense to think about that part of your existence rather than this part of our existence and not live like it's all about this part? Do you know... Warren Buffett, his investment advice is like gold. People will line up for hours just to shake his hand. Somehow he's been able to turn all of his investments into a winning affair. And I say, good for him. Why would you want to invest in something that's losing? But his investment advice is like gold. But don't you think people would be a little wiser if they had a chance to talk to him, to maybe talk to him about this part? Instead of asking him about how to invest their money better, to say, Warren, you know, you're 75 years old. The day is coming very quickly when all of your investments are going to slip through your hands like a wet bar of soap. So, Warren, tell me, what have you learned about preparing for eternity? (sighs) No, We'd never ask him something like that. We don't talk like that. No way. Well, we talk about how rich people are. And even when Warren will be laid in that shiny mahogany box in a few years from now, Men will stand around celebrating what a great investor and what a rich man he was and how they want to be like Warren. The psalmist would say, that's ridiculous to live life like that. Why would anyone ever live like that? Why would anyone spend their life building an empire which will be stripped away from them in an instant of time, leaving them no better off than a stupid animal that has been hit by a car and left to die alongside the road? That's how the psalmist describes man. He says, man in in his pomp will not endure, he's like the beasts that perish, he's like roadkill. Why would anybody live their life building an empire that's going to be stripped away from them? John Piper, in a wonderful book called Desiring God, expresses the folly of a materialistic worldview this way. He said, suppose someone passes empty-handed through the turnstiles of a big city art museum and begins to take the pictures off the wall and carry them under his arm. You come up to him and say, what are you doing? He answers, I'm becoming an art collector. (laughs) But they're not really yours, you say, and besides, they won't let you take those out of here. You'll have to go out just like you came in. But he answers and says, sure, they're mine. I have them under my arm, don't I? People in the halls look at me as an important dealer, and I don't bother myself with thoughts about leaving. Don't be a killjoy. Piper says, we would call this man a fool. He is out of touch with reality. And yet that is how hundreds of millions of people in the world today live. Totally out of touch with reality when it comes to the universal truth in that they are living according to a universal lie. Why would they ignore that truth and live according to a lie? Well, it's because of the third universal that the psalmist shares and it is what I would call a universal fear. A universal fear. They fear what might happen if they don't live according to the lie. If they don't get that next promotion, that higher paying job. If they don't save up more and more and more money for their retirement so they're very secure. If they don't invest in the real estate and and stocks and bonds and golds and hedge funds and all of those things like everybody else. They're afraid of what will happen if they don't join the crowd that's going this way and ignoring this truth. You might put it another way, they are afraid to live counter-culturally. They are afraid to say no to the insanity of this idea that money and possessions can purchase us life or buy us more time. Many people will choose their career based on that fear and will determine to spend the best years of their life Based on financial considerations, based on earning potential, rather than based on kingdom impact. People will accept promotion after promotion after promotion with absolutely no thought of how that might impact other parts of their life. Why? Because, because, why wouldn't you? If you get offered more money and more position and more responsibility and more power, why would you ever say no? I have a friend who said no a while back. He was offered a very lucrative promotion that would demand a whole lot more money and a whole lot more time. And he said, if I do that, I won't have the time for my family and I won't be able to be an elder anymore in my church because I won't have time for that. So he said, no. People don't understand that. But that's how most people make their decisions based on this, this insane fear of what will happen if they don't have enough, if they don't have a bit more. What if... I retire and don't have enough to live on. What if I, what if I lose my job? What, 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 what if I, we get downsized? What if the, the bottom falls out of the economy and, and my investments tank? i got a better what I've for you. What if you die tomorrow and leave it all behind? Or what if your life is snuffed out like Lady Dies, right in the prime of life, right when everything looked the brightest for you? Two few years ago in Toronto, a young woman was standing in the subway waiting for a train when a perfect stranger came up behind her, pushed her off the platform into the path of an oncoming train, and she died instantly, 23 years old. What if that had been you? Don't tell me I don't take the subway, so I don't have to worry. No, those are the what-if questions. Those are the what-if questions that we should be asking ourselves, because the truth is we are all going to die, and no amount of money or smarts or real estate will do us one bit of good. The fear of the lie is so strong that people are driven almost to to this delusional pursuit of security that they can buy themselves. One such person may have been a lady by the name of Bertha Adams. She was 71 years old. She died in Palm Beach, Florida. The coroner's report read, "Cause cause of death malnutrition. She had wasted away to 50 pounds. When the state authorities made their preliminary investigation of Mrs. Adams' home, they said they found it a veritable pig pen, the biggest mess you can imagine. One seasoned inspector declared he had never seen a dwelling in greater disarray. The woman had begged food from neighbors' back doors, and the clothes that she did have she had got from the Salvation Army. From all outward appearances, she was a penniless recluse, a pitiful and forgotten widow. But not so. Amidst the jumble of her house, the officials found two keys to safe deposit boxes in two local banks. In the first box were over 700 AT&T stock certificates, plus hundreds of other valuable certificates, bonds, and solid financial securities, not to mention a stack of cash amounting to $200,000. In the other safe deposit box was $600,000. You see, this, this, this fear of having to have more and more and more can become absolutely irrational and delusional. Do you know why I believe God wrote this psalm? I believe he wrote it to deliver us from that fear. To expose the lie and to deliver us from living in fear of the lie. He says right at the beginning of his little talk after the first four verses of introducing it, he says, why should I fear? Verse 5. Why should I fear? In days of adversity when the wealth of all those around me grows greater and greater. Why? Why? You know, rich men tend to have a way of making poor men worry. You ever read those, uh, those uh, financial advice columns where they tell you how much money you need to be saving now if you're going to retire? You read that and I go, oh boy, I'm not going to be able to retire until I'm 105. You know, Those kind of things can kind of make us worry. You see everybody getting more and more and bigger and bigger and you think, "Boy, I'm not keeping up. I better do something. I better start saving more. Well, I'm not saying you shouldn't save something. But you know, rich men have a way of making the rest of us worry. God says, don't fear. Don't fear when you see that mad pursuit for possessions and power and position all around you. He says it again in verse 16. Don't be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. Folks, God wrote this psalm to, to deliver us from the fear of, a, of the lie. Nobody and nothing on earth can redeem your soul. Nobody and nothing on earth can redeem, can give you true life. No amount of money or success or good looks or intelligence can do it. I don't care if you're the president of Microsoft or the princess of Wales. You're going to die. And the psalmist says in verse 7, no man can by any means redeem his brother. But there is one who can redeem, not only from death, but from the fear of death, and from the fear of living according to the the lie that dictates how so many other people live, and that one is God. For he tells us in verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of death. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have nothing to fear. You can face that universal truth without fear. I'm going to die? Sure, fine, I'm ready. Whenever. I mean, I'm not... Asking that it be today, but if it is, I'm ready. I don't fear it. And you can expose the universal lie and refuse to buy into it. You don't have to let your life be governed by this mad, irrational pursuit of more and more and more security. You can rather invest your life in something that the undertaker can never lay his hands on. I believe that many of us have made. Choices in life that may mean that we will never be incredibly rich in terms of the world's measurement of riches, although I believe here in the West, if you measure us according to the rest of the world, we're all very wealthy. But many of you have made decisions and continue to make decisions that mean that you won't be as rich as you could have been. So what? Who cares? Maybe I won't have enough to retire when I'm 65. Big deal. I'll retire when I'm 70. Maybe I'll die first. It really doesn't matter all that much. Maybe I won't have a big fat education fund so that I can pay off uh, all my, my kids' college costs. So far, I'm doing fine. I didn't have a big fund, but God's got a big way of taking care of those things. So what? I don't, I don't really care. Maybe I won't be able to buy a late model car every three to five years. I don't care. I'll drive my old one. I'll, I'll walk. I'll take the bus. You know, there are more important things in life than owning two or three homes, than retiring at 55, than having a street named after me, or the ultimate, having a monument built in my honor so that the pigeons of the neighborhood can sit on my head and leave their deposits for the next hundred years. There really are more important things in life than that to me. Mutual funds, stock portfolios, RRSPs will not be worth the paper that they are written on in the day when the undertaker comes knocking at your door. Now, please understand, I am not in any way uh, advocating financial irresponsibility. I believe every one of us has a responsibility to live responsibly with the resources that God gives us. And I can't tell you what that is for you, and you can't tell me what it is for me. I, I've got some RRSPs, I've got a nice piece of property. I've got a few things. I'm saying we each have to live financially responsibly according to what God has told us, but not insanely not irrationally, not delusionally, like the world would like us to do along with them. In that hour which will usher in the first day of a very, very, very long eternity, the only investment that will count is righteousness in Christ. The psalmist says in verse 14, the righteous shall rule over them in the morning. Donald Trump, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and all the rich men in the world put together will not have enough to make a down payment on one soul or one second of eternity with God if they have not invested their lives the way God says they have to be invested. John Piper writes this. Picture this. 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash in the Sea of Japan. Before the crash, there is a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, a playboy and his playmate, and a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. After the crash, they stand before God, utterly stripped of MasterCards, checkbooks, credit lines, image clothes, how-to-succeed books, and Hilton reservations. Here are the politician, the executive, the playboy and his playmate, and the missionary kid, all on level ground with nothing absolutely nothing in their hands, possessing only what they have brought in their hearts. Imagine that. I believe that's a really accurate illustration of what the psalmist was saying. So I ask you, what will you have when the clock strikes midnight, when the glass slipper falls off, when all you were in life is transformed by death? What will you have I feel a little bit like a Bay Street investment advisor standing before a group of very wealthy potential investors. I would love to have the portfolios of some of your young, enthusiastic lives and the portfolios of some of us who are not so young but have great experience and great skill. I would invest your lives in resources all over this world in places like. China or India or the Middle East. i love to see businessmen go and serve God in parts of the the world that are unreached. I'd invest some of your lives as youth workers amongst the Muslim youth of Bosnia or Kosovo. I'd invest others of you who are entrepreneurs in places like Bosnia and Kosovo where there's 50% or more unemployment and where creating a job for somebody is a door to the gospel. I'd invest some of you in places like France or Austria or Spain or Italy where there are literally, not imaginatively, there are literally tens of thousands of cities and towns in those countries in Europe that have absolutely no evangelical church. And where Islam is growing, is just spreading like wildfire. And then, of course, many of you, I'd leave right here in Canada to invest yourselves in this place, to stir up God's people, to reach the nations who have come to our doorstep, who, by the way, are growing at five times the rate of the general population in Canada. I would urge you, wherever you are, to live lives that proclaim by the choices that you make that you are free from the fear of death and that you are free from the insanity of living according to the lie that so many people around us live by. I would urge you to live in such a way that you would show that you're not bound by those things that they are bound by. But you know, I can't invest your life, only you can. And so I would simply say to you today that I urge you to live your lives in such a way that when the clock strikes midnight for you and the glass slipper falls off, all you have lived for and worked for in this very short life will not be lost in the wreckage of this world but will be waiting for you in the glories of the next. You may have noticed when we began reading this psalm that uh, it was written to be sung, as were many of the psalms. But this one expressly says that he wrote it so that it should be put to music. He talks about expressing his riddle on the harp. Well, we have kind of a different kind of harp today. If you stood it upright, it might look more like one. But we also have a minstrel, and actually quite a few minstrels in our congregation who love to worship and to lead in music. And Alan uh, has written uh, a piece of music, for this psalm and has uh, some folks who are going to help him uh, share that with us right now. I wonder how the world's going to know who our God and our King is unless we live like He's our God, not what they're pursuing is our God. And we can say as much as we like that He's our God, He's our King, but if we don't demonstrate that and what we show is most important to us, then they're maybe not going to be likely to believe us. As I thought about uh, the blessing that I'd like to leave with you today, the word fearlessness comes to mind. Remember a few years ago, you saw a lot of these little bumper stickers that says, No Fear. That was, uh, I don't know if it was a line of clothing or what. I guess I didn't buy any if it was. But, um, you know, it's the idea, No Fear. Well, you know, if you believe what we just read this morning, the world's got a lot of fear. They just don't want to admit it. But we can truly have no fear other than the fear of God if we believe what God says and live according to it. And so I'd like to bless you with fearlessness today in a world that seeks security and wealth and possessions and position. May you know the fearlessness of seeking the wealth and position that you have in Jesus Christ. In a world that seems increasingly rocked by fear Insecurity, financial insecurity, all kinds of insecurity. Now the head of the Federal Reserve just needs to sneeze and markets start to tumble. And we live in a world that is very, very insecure. May we know the fearlessness of the security that we have in Jesus Christ the Rock who cannot be shaken. And may you know the fearlessness of spending your lives for the Redeemer rather than seeking to redeem your lives like so many around us do with things that are perishable. God bless you.